Hello, my friends. A terrible conversation today. A great conversation if conversationalism is what you're after, but terrible in terms of the substance of it. I'm talking about how the world so quickly careens into war. Our guest today is Ben Weingarten, the author and scholar. I uh, I don't know. It's, it's a tough time, but we got to be honest about it. If you want to see the video version of this podcast, go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. There's a lot of clips we're going to show, so you might want to do that. It's eight bucks a month because we don't get any money from Trudeau, and it shows. Here's today's podcast. Tonight, a feature interview with Ben Weingarten about how the alliance between leftist progressives and Islamists helped put the world into war. It's October 11th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. I remember one of the most important books of 2020 was written, well, it was on St. Patrick's Day that it was released, which just happened to be the date when so many of the lockdowns from the pandemic kicked in, which changed the subject on a hundred things towards COVID and the pandemic. And it's a shame because I think one of the most outstanding books of the year was published and was in some ways overshadowed by events, overtaken by events, the name of the book is American ingrate Ilhan Omar and the progressive Islamist takeover of the Democratic Party. That was the essential authoritative biography, and not just a biography, but really a, a current history of the Democratic Party. That was three and a half years ago, and we see the ramifications of the progressive Islamist takeover of the Democrats in their reaction to the wave of barbarous terrorism in Israel and the reaction to that in the United States and Canada. Joining us now via Skype is the author of that book, our old friend, Benjamin Weingarten. Ben, great to see you again. Ezra, likewise, thanks for having me. You know, I was thinking of your book because it's, it's, it's just such a powerful book, and, and the title says it all, American Ingrate. Here's someone from Somalia who comes from one of the most, well, Donald Trump would have a certain phrase for her country, but one of the most run-down, failed states in the world to really one of the greatest countries in the world, and her response is she wants to tear it down. That's that critical theory that Marxism, identitarian politics, it was bad enough when there was no existential crisis, but the Ilhan Omars of the world are running the Democrats now, aren't they? Yeah, and we are unfortunately seeing the utterly devastating consequences of it in the barbarism that took place in Israel and continues in no small part as a consequence of the concerted Democratic Party policies that started under Barack Obama, under the Obama-Biden administration, and have effectively continued in a third term under Joe Biden, wherein they have sought to elevate Iran and its proxies, the, the world's leading state sponsor of jihad, into the strong course in the Middle East, while doing everything they possibly could to undermine delegitimize, isolate Israel and kneecap it 
thereby turning on its head what should be in America's national interest and the West national interest, which is a hegemonic Israel in that region with Arab, Sunni Arab allies as a bulwark against Iran, the world's leading state sponsor of jihad. And instead, progressivism dictates turning that paradigm completely on its head. And so what is the consequence? Was I argued in a recent piece in the New York Post, Joe Biden has not only Israeli blood on his hands, but American blood on his hands as well, and American hostages now, in no small part as a consequence of the U.S. effectively being the world's leading state sponsor of the world's leading state sponsor of jihad via the Iran-backed Hamas attack and the potential future attacks that are to come from other fronts, including from Hezbollah in Lebanon, from Iran-tied and backed, quote-unquote, militias, jihadist groups from Syria, and perhaps beyond as well. So this is a direct consequence of the left being in hock to Islamic supremacists. We see how pervasive this is on elite college campuses around America, and we've seen it, of course, in imagery and footage around the world. And you see it in a Biden White House, by the way, that while it gets all of these plaudits for uh, such stirring remarks in the last couple of days, twice its State Department has put out statements only to then back backtrack and delete them, calling for Israel to have a, to stand down, essentially. So in other words, to accept and attack the most barbaric massacre in the history of the country, minimally in the last 50 years, and one of the most barbaric massacres, arguably in the history of the world, wherein the equivalent of tens of thousands of Americans died in terms of the ratios here, and babies were beheaded, and there were rapes, and the hostage-taking of women and children, and the elderly, including at least one Holocaust survivor. And this administration says, Israel, stand down. Surrender, basically. Don't respond. Don't defend your sovereignty. Don't defend your people uh, and invite still more jihad to come. And then the administration does two other things. It refuses to revoke the six billion dollars that it gifted Iran uh, as ransom for hostages and, and, and is playing semantics and word games about, well, they can't access the money and the money is going to be for humanitarian purposes, et cetera, et cetera. And then leaving aside fungibility and all the other issues around that argument. And then beyond that, they have hemmed and hawed over Iran's culpability in the attack. Yesterday, we finally heard the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, say Iran is complicit in the attack, but they are so lawyerly in their defense and they're serving as unregistered foreign agents for the Islamic Republic of Iran they continue to say, we can't find a direct tie. In other words, they can't find some communications of Khamenei getting on the phone and calling up Hamas leadership and saying, it's go time, uh, engage in the jihad. That is essentially the argument. Well, we, we, can, we can track Iranian funds to Hamas. We can talk about the tactics that were employed. We can talk about the apparent signal jamming and the sophistication of the attack. We can talk about all these other elements of it that point to it being Iran-backed, obviously, but we can't say definitively that there's a smoking gun. So the defense of the Iranian regime continues, and that tells you all you need to know about the cheap talk coming from the Biden administration right now. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think back to your book, American Ingrate. I mean, 
Ilhan Omar is a symptom and a cause uh, in, in some ways. Uh, let me show you some footage from Dearborn, Michigan. An enormous rally, thousands of people cheering for Hamas. I'm sure you saw this online. Here, take a quick look at this stadium. Take a look. What? So if you're a Democrat governor of Michigan, of course you're going to talk about, uh, well, sure, we're against attacks on civilians in Israel, but also against attacks on civilians in Gaza. You're going to play it down the middle because you don't want to appall your old stock American voters, but you absolutely would not be getting elected without the pro-Hamas vote. So on the one hand, you have Democrats chasing the pro-Hamas vote. On the other hand, they themselves are making America, they're setting, the, Ilhan Omar is not setting the policy directly, but she's infusing the party with an ideology that you would call cultural Marxism, our friends are our enemies, our enemies are our friends, tear down what we have. I, I think there's something diabolical about it and it really feels like the decline of an empire. It really feels like enemies outside and inside. And when America finally falls, God forbid, may it not happen in our lifetime, it'll be because someone literally lifted up the drawbridge. That's how I feel about it. Ben, what do you think? I agree. And you can look to the rhetoric of the elite campuses, again, and in Washington, D.C., and in Dearborn, Michigan, and it's all kind of one and the same and indistinguishable. The entire logic to the policy, to the extent there is a logic to it, is essentially America is the great Satan and Israel is the little Satan. I mean, there's not that much difference in that rhetoric that you would hear from jihadists to what you would hear from your cultural Marxist professor at almost any university in this country. And so as a consequence of the West's great evil and raping, by the way, is exactly where the Islamic supremacists are and who are acting in arguably worse ways than the Nazis because they're not even ashamed in trying to hide their atrocities. They actually want it circulated on social media for the entire world to see when babies are beheaded and women are raped and beyond. Uh, and this is who our elites side with, anti-civilizational forces, barbaric forces, animal forces. Uh, it is the suicide of the West. To your point about the populations that have been imported, and obviously this has been illustrated even more starkly in Europe with mass immigration from majority Muslim countries. But no, I always go back to 9-11. The 9-11 Commission got it right that in large part, 9-11 was a consequence of a failure of immigration. And the U.S. response since then has been to import, I believe the number is over 2 million people from majority Muslim countries since that time. And it only takes a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a 2.2 million number, let's say, to cause utter havoc and bring a society to its knees. And by the way, those people cheering on the college campuses and then in Dearborn, Michigan and beyond, they essentially create 
a jihadist or a, a jihadist sympathizer's veto over U.S. policy. One of the evil genius aspects of immigration jihad and of the information warfare, essentially, that's been inflicted on the West is that you, today you have European powers and, again, rhetorically, the American administration who are saying, we've got Israel's back and we're not going to stand with the Hamas terrorists. But if and when Israel engages in a mass incursion into Gaza and it is grisly and it is grinding and immediately on Western media, you have the images of uh, dying children and crying mothers and such and the images of you know, Israel striking mosques, mosques and hospitals because that's actually where Hamas is hiding out because they're savage like that. And those images build up every single day. The pressure is going to be immense on Western powers to stand down, including with the implicit and explicit threat of attacks on our streets. And of course, as I'm sure you've seen, there's already video of a Hamas leader from the lap of luxury in Qatar calling for uh, a day of rage. I believe this coming Friday, a day of action where jihadists are to get out in the streets and engage in violent jihad in Western capitals and across the world for that matter. So there's a jihadist veto that's been built into the West now, and they expect to put the West into submission under threat of jihad. So all of the chickens appear to be coming home to roost uh, and the conflagration starts in Israel, but it extends through the rest of the world. And there are any number of reasons, any number of challenges that Western powers are going to face in this, starting with defending their own sovereignty. And, you know, we in America, we've had open borders for how many years? And Israel is the most hardened state in the West uh, with the first rate intelligence apparatus and cutting edge surveillance technology and literal walls and substantial fortified borders. And Israel was overrun within hours. So imagine how we are sitting ducks here in the West right now. And this points to the maladies, the pathologies of the progressive ideology that has put us in this perilous state in the West. And I believe it. I mean, in Sydney, Australia, you had thousands of uh, Muslims outside the opera house shooting flares at it, by the way, which is quite an aggressive premonition of what's to come. And they weren't chanting, you know, Israel retreat to, to 1967 borders or 48 borders. They weren't, it wasn't a technical call. It was gas the Jews. Gas the Jews was what they were chanting. Here, take a look at this from Australia. And around the world, here in Canada, the chance of intifada, which 
is an Arabic way of saying a, a revolt, a rebellion, a pogrom, a, a riot. Chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That means totally exterminating the Israeli state. But I, I don't think they're done in Israel. They're here in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa, Calgary, Edmonton with the same chance. I think there will be violence across the West. They're saying as much when they're saying intifada, when they're saying gas the Jews, they're saying the same things they say in Gaza. Why, why would we think they don't mean it? Look, it is in the text of the Quran and the Hadith and the Islamic supremacists who interpret it and take it as such. They subscribe to a totalitarian ideology that can brook no dissent, that is inherently expansionistic and seeks to make the entire world submit. And it's worth noting when you know, people record Allahu Akbar as Allah is great. No, that's actually not what jihadists are saying. They're saying Allah is greatest. It's an inherently supremacist ideology. And so, of course, to the extent they're in the depraved and decrepit and decadent West, uh, they, they feel that it is their job to impose their ideology on it. Um, and to your point, it just it's, it's maddening the aspect of the, the Qatar part of this. You know, beyond obviously the hypocrisy of the cowardly leaders taking refuge there. Qatar plays both sides. Qatar has, I believe, the largest U.S. military base in the region. And at the same time, they're harboring Hamas. Uh, and they're trying to play peacemaker between Israel and effectively Iran in terms of hostage negotiations. So why do we have a base? Why does the U.S. have a base in Qatar? I, I checked this before the show. Qatar is listed as a non-major NATO ally alongside Israel. So it gets the same sort of support that Israel would. Qatar pays off Western think tanks and lobbies hard in the West precisely to protect itself. Uh, and it corrupts us and it corrodes us. Uh, and it's just so suicidal what we have done in the West. And I, I, I agree with you as well. I, I think it only gets worse from here. And we've been lulled into a false sense of security. I've long felt that we were very vulnerable to jihadist attack. And I've also felt that the best explanation for why in America, at least since 9-11, there has not been a major catastrophe approaching that level is precisely because the world has been going their way. There's been no reason to, to necessitate engaging in offensive jihad, much better to let institutions kill themselves and infiltrate them and work within them so that uh, we you know, suffocate ourselves by our own hands, which is you know, by our own hands is uh, what the Muslim Brotherhood has said in their own literature that's been exposed over time. Uh, but now it appears they may be engaging for 
the offensive jihad. And this this feels like a perfect storm. You know, we will see ultimately if this turns into a multi-front war with Israel. Today there's been reporting about attacks coming from the north. Uh, we will see if Israel uh, op- itself opens up or tries to avoid opening up a multi-front war by striking far beyond just Gaza and going to Lebanon, maybe beyond Lebanon, maybe even to Tehran itself. You can see how this can spiral out of control very easily. And the danger for us in the West, beyond the fact that it's in the national interest of all of our nations for Israel to be a strong and free nation and to subdue the enemies of civilization around it, is that the enemy is here as well. There are Islamic supremacists within our borders uh, despite how lax we've been, there have been prosecutions and indictments of Hezbollah agents here. And we know, of course, that Iranian agents have carried out attacks elsewhere. And, and you know, by the way, of course, in the U.S. government, we've now found about found out about a what appears to be an Iranian spy ring that ran from the State Department Iranian envoy, Rob, Rob Malley, to an individual he promoted to end up the chief of staff for the Pentagon's counterterrorism office. So. The compromise is real. The danger is is imminent. And these are incredibly dark and trying times potentially for the West. A West the West may not war, but the war certainly wants us here. Hmm. You know, just a month ago, Rebel News led a mission to Israel and the United Arab Emirates. We called it the Abraham Accords trip. And we spent a week on the Israeli side and we looked at we had a tour of the fence. Uh, the wall, the the high tech sensors and by Danny Tirza, the uh, retired, I think he was a colonel who helped build them. And I, for twenty years, that technology was enough to keep the peace. And I think that maybe lulled Israel into a confidence that it was that it was untouchable, that it had um, it was the big, you know, man on campus to use a phrase, and you know, I, the the signing of the Abraham Accords, I think, was real and was meaningful. And we went to Dubai and Abu Dhabi afterwards, and the, fr- the, the peace there was real, and it was warm. And, and now that feels like a laughable Eden time before the fall, before reality set in. And there was hope that Saudi Arabia would join, and there was hope that there would be a railway all the way through Saudi Arabia and into Israel and out the port of Haifa, and we would just be in this end-of-history moment where you know, nation would not lift sword up against nation and neither would they war anymore. That was just a month ago. It it felt so hopeful and so peaceful. And all of those assumptions are cracked. And I think in many ways, Israel's the canary in the coal mine. It's going to happen there first. But I look at that U.S. border and people cross it by the hundred, by the thousand every day. Who knows what they're bringing in with them? Who knows what weapons? Who knows who they are? And I, I fear that there may be internal attacks in America the same way. And why wouldn't there be? And if you're Iran and you've put all this effort into attacking Israel's high-tech fence, of course you're going to go in the unfenced border with the, the great Satan itself. Why wouldn't you? It would be crazy if they wouldn't. I don't know. I went from being uh, exhilarated with the prospect of peace a, a month ago to being terrified about the near certainty of a larger war. Yeah, we've we've lived to some extent under the illusion of peace and end of times. I mean, I, I do think that there is real merit to the 
Israeli Sunni Arab sort of defense conduit that was being built. And that, you know, I think the conventional wisdom is to some extent right that these attacks were in part about derailing any sort of Israel, Saudi, quote unquote, normalization or rapprochement or something even more substantial than that. I also think, though, that it was about deterring Israel from dealing with Iran and its proxies uh, in the substantial way that it felt it might have to with respect to nuclear program and beyond. So I, I do think there are other uh, there are other reasons behind this attack. But look, in the Middle East, w- the, the strong course rules and the Sunni Arab powers were sufficiently concerned about an ascendant Iran aided, abetted and enabled first by the Obama Biden administration and now by the Biden administration such that they were willing to set aside the hatred of still masses of peoples within these countries to try and form relations with Israel precisely because it was strong. And at minimum, they believed it was in their national interest to side with Israel, probably for intelligence purposes, defense purposes, economic purposes, and beyond. I don't think that that has changed today, despite the rhetoric coming from the leaders of the Sunni Arab governments, which has been essentially pro Hamas and pro-Palestinian Arab, or at least not pro-Israel in response. But I still believe that all of those powers are ultimately moved themselves by power. Who is strong? Who do we need to align with to protect our interests? And I don't think that ends with what has occurred now. But that said, I don't see how there aren't hugely bloody, grisly days ahead. It's an incredibly volatile situation. Israel, to some extent, is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. If it treats as its mission eviscerating Hamas uh, in Gaza, that's more narrow than potentially what might be necessary. So what happens if Hezbollah opens up the second front up in the north? What about the native Arab population in Israel or in Judea and Samaria that could fight an attack from within? And then what about Tehran itself? Uh, is Israel going to strike Hamas's leadership in Qatar? And then what does that do? You can see this spiraling out of control in a million different ways. So, you know, I still think that the notion that the other Sunni Arab powers do not want an ascendant Iran, do not want a nuclear Iran is real. I think their respect for Israel's strength is real. But this was a psychologically massive blow and a substantively massive blow as well. And to some extent, it's unfortunate that Israel, you know, we'll we'll learn more about the reporting in terms of how did this happen? How could there have been this catastrophic intelligence failure? But by all accounts, it seems that much of this was that Hamas lulled Israel into a false sense of security, where Israel essentially uh, came to the conclusion that Hamas was not interested in engaging in serious attacks. They were more focused on internally what was going on in Gaza and that by uh, increasing economic relations with the Palestinian Arabs in Gaza, giving them work permits and letting them come into Israel, that there would be this virtuous cycle and everyone would win. The notion, though, that economics are what prevails and what trumps was folly, as is the notion that a jihadist group dedicated to Israel's evisceration was going to suddenly give that up. But we in the West love to delude ourselves in these naive beliefs 
that, well, you know, the other side, they just kind of want the same thing that we do at the end of the day. And unfortunately, time and time again, that is disproven. And Israel has a much smaller margin for error than we do because of where it's located and how tiny it is in terms of the population and the landmass. So this is a tragic, tragic lesson. Um, you know, we'll see what the other contributing factors were to the failure, but it's devastating. And you know, Israel faces existential threats from all sides today, but we also face those existential threats as well. It may not be as salient, it may not be as apparent, and it may not be as large today, but it's there. And even worse, of course, is the self-righteously suicidal things that we do even without jihadists having to act on our shores. You know, I, I saw this image of a, a huge crater in Gaza. Looks like a, it was an apartment that Israel had leveled. It, it, and it looked a little bit like Stalingrad, um, you know, an urban wreckage. Sort of like the city of Bakhmut in Ukraine, where Ukraine and Russia have been shelling each other for a year. And Jesse Kelly, the, the pundit, who's a former Marine, said, what does this look like to you? Only for only military types answer. And I read the replies and they said, this is a huge trap for an a, official army to roll in in uniforms with vehicles. It's, it's a trap for snipers, for ambushes. You're shooting up. They're, they're looking down. Like he, Jesse Kelly... Uh, basically said, if you go into Gaza, you are going into an ambush, booby traps, snipers. And that's true. And that's the thing. Israel has the F-35 Lightning. It has an amazing stealth fighter. It has the Merkava tank, which is regarded, although one of them was neutralized um, over the weekend. But how does that work when you're fighting urban warfare against uh, a terrorist force that has had 18 years to to lay booby traps and I, I'm that really got me worried that tweet by Jesse Kelly and then I saw the United States has one aircraft carrier in the region and is sending another and the president of Turkey Erdogan had a little press conference he said what's that all about who are you going to attack here's just a clip of Erdogan talking about these aircraft carriers and we'll put that America uçak gemisini İsrail'e gönderiyor. Amerika'nın uçak gemisinin İsrail'de ne işi var? Ne yapmaya geliyor? Ve buraya gelen uçak gemisinin etrafında bütün botlarıyla, uçak gemisindeki uçaklarıyla ne yapacak? Orada bütün artık Gazze'yi etrafını vurarak indirerek çok ciddi katliamlara adım atacak. And he's he's implying what are you going to do? Are you going to attack Gaza? Of course not. America wouldn't do that. I'm more, the the ostensible explanation is to deter other regional powers from getting in to deter Iran or even Russia maybe. I don't see it that way. I see it as Joe Biden deterring Israel from doing anything outside of Gaza, deterring Israel from going after Qatar, from going after Tehran. I I don't know. I, I mean, I, I just don't think that it's the slam dunk for Israel militarily. I don't, I don't know if anyone ever said it was, but I think 
I, I think these are very difficult times, and I agree with you. I don't think the Biden administration is actually friendly with Israel, despite their public talk. I don't know. What do you, what do you make of the aircraft carriers? Is it just a show of force? Is it What's that all about? And what, how can Israel actually win this thing? How can Israel do what it claims it'll do to destroy Hamas once and for all? How without retaking that booby-trapped Stalingrad? Well, uh, first of all, to your very first point about Gaza, to the extent this really is going to be a ground-based mass incursion with 300,000 or 350,000-plus troops, and the casualties are going to be massive. You're sitting ducks going into a war zone. We've all seen the movies from Iraq and elsewhere. When you're going house to house, door to door, when we talk about the jihad tunnels in Gaza, when there are hostages, and we haven't even talked about the, the massive size of hostages and the hostage trades that Israel has engaged in in the past have been catastrophic in terms of the number of levels, the levels of jihadists unleashed and here we're and that's with one prisoner and here we're talking about over a hundred hostages so I, I i i agree with you i think any kind of land-based incursion into gaza is going to be incredibly fraught it's going to lead to massive casualties because the other side has no qualms about losing their people there and beyond that uh, another concern that i know israel has based upon what they've talked about in terms of fortifying their other fronts is what happens if you have several hundred thousand troops bogged down there and then Hezbollah attacks from the north? Or again, you have Hamas or other jihadist groups who are attacking from Judea and Samaria. So uh, again, even before you get to Syria or Tehran itself. So I, I agree. It's incredibly fraught and tactically complicated. With respect to this carrier that was brought in, I think it's a token show of friendship that goes along with the other rhetoric that we've heard from the Biden administration. But my inclination is, first of all, how can the person that wanted to make Iran the strong course in the Middle East and that did everything he could to put the screws to Israel, including trying to foment the leftist opposition to the government, which created the destabilized conditions that itself could have enabled this and probably threaten unity in a time of war? right now, how could you expect that suddenly on a dime, that administration was going to change and suddenly become Israel's greatest friend? And so I, I agree, I share your inclination, and I'll probably be writing about this. I think that support to the extent it comes from this administration is ultimately going to come with strangling strings attached to it. In other words, I expect that support will constitute ultimately a suffocating bear hug especially, again, as world opinion starts to turn on Israel, as Israel does what it believes it has to do to defend itself. And you start to see the images of the dead bodies piling up and, again, the crying mothers and such on the other side in the war. So I agree. The more involved the United States is, potentially, the more power it has to restrain Israel and stop Israel from doing what it needs to effectively defend its interests. So you know, from my vantage point as an American, and I'll also be writing about this in the in the coming days, from the perspective of our national interest, the Biden administration should get out of the way. It, it should provide diplomatic support. It should provide intelligence. It should sell Israel the weapons that it needs to defend itself. It should defend it in international forums, and and it should not break from Israel or have an inch of daylight. 
from it. And Israel is a force multiplier for America's interests. And by the way, there are Americans dead and held hostage right now. So we are part of this war. But that said, the more involved the Biden administration gets, the more it would work, I think, to the detriment of Israel's interests and by extension, our interests. Israel needs to be able to defend itself here as it sees fit. And so to your last point about how tactically difficult this is, I completely agree. Surrounded on all sides, essentially, by adversaries, this presents a a hugely difficult situation. I'm sure there are questions about the integrity of the intelligence after what's happened. There's, again, the psychological shock. And then there's the sheer number of people who have fallen in a very tiny country, which in and of itself is devastating. So what do I think ultimately Israel is going to do? I think Israel is put to a choice of is the focus truly eviscerate Hamas in Gaza and then perhaps re-annex it? And do you think that that's the end of the hostilities? Or do you have to go more offensive and use an element of surprise and do something big and shocking that goes way beyond just Gaza or even just Lebanon that maybe goes to the head of the snake in Iran itself? And I'm sure those are the kinds of conversations that are going on uh, among the military leadership in Israel right now. Because as horrible as it is to expand this potential war, it may be that Israel has to go way above and beyond the assumed scope to prevent something much more cataclysmic from happening down the road. Well, there's no good answers here at all. It's all terrifying. And I look around the world and I see our useless Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, instead of Stephen Harper, who was a sober-minded, respected middle power. I see Joe Biden, who I don't even think is cognitively aware of what's going on. I saw an unconfirmed report that in briefings, he's mixing up Ukraine and Israel. I absolutely believe that, by the way. You know, his staff are calling a lid before noon, as in he's done working for the day. He's had too much exertion. Um, everyone can see that. They can. You talk about the strong horse. Everyone can see the weak horse um, in Joe Biden. Rishi Sunak gives some, you know, encouraging words of moral support, but but he's got an enormous. The, last I uh, looked into the matter, there were more than. 10,000 jihadis in London being tracked by Scotland Yard. I think there's a real chance of terrorism in the UK. Um, So who's the ally going to be? It's going to be the European Union. It's going to be Emmanuel Macron, maybe, who has issues of his own. We were there for the riots in Marseille a couple of months ago. I think the world is a much more terrifying place. And ironically, they said if we get rid of Trump, We'll have sanity again. We'll have grown-ups in charge again. Trump was an era of peace, and I don't think this would have happened under Trump. Maybe it would have, but I think if Americans were kidnapped or killed, I think Trump would be attacking things right now. I don't think it would have happened. Well, it certainly didn't during his administration. What do you think of that? Well, first of all, when, when American troops were killed by Iran, we took out Qasem Soleimani, the architect of the terror empire, the Shiite crescent that they've extended over the Middle East. So, you know, if you kill 10 of ours, we are going to kill one of your most powerful military leaders. And then what was the response to that? Well, yes, bounties were purportedly put on the heads of Americans, uh, but Iran could not do much more. They were neutralized. Everyone said that if the U.S. moved its embassy to Jerusalem, that there would be chaos on the Arab streets the next day. 
nothing happened. You probably had more hand wringing from Western capitals and our universities and newsrooms than you did on the Arab street. The Abraham Accords, how could that possibly have happened? Why? Because everyone in the Islamic world knew that Israel and the U.S. were playing for keeps. They were strong. And Iran poses a threat to all of those regimes and namely Israel. And so they understood there was a credible threat of massive pain that would be inflicted upon anyone who would threaten Israel or the U.S. The U.S. obviously also showed that in its destruction of ISIS. And now that credible deterrent is gone. And when that credible deterrent goes away, the weakness invites jihad. The strength is what puts it down at the end of the day. And that does not mean nation building and massive land incursions all over the world and boots on the ground and trying to democratize the Middle East. But it means that if you kill one of ours, we're going to rain hell down upon your leaders, or you're going to have that fear in the back of your mind, and you're going to think twice before you act. And instead, what we've had here was the aiding, abetting, and enabling of Iran and protecting of its proxies and the cudgeling of Israel. And when that happens, it's an invitation to jihad. You know, one of the most terrifying images that I think uh, probably is the image that comes to mind for uh, Iranian leaders or terrorist leaders in the Middle East, it's probably their screensaver on their computers, is when under Joe Biden, America hastily abandoned Afghanistan. Trump was Trump was withdrawing, but Joe Biden left in a Vietnam-style rush, leaving behind billions of dollars worth of military equipment, leaving behind allies. The haste of the of the retreat, and I can't help but think that a lot of those U.S. weapons, which people say, oh, those are just small arms. Those are just jeeps. Those are just machine guns. It wouldn't surprise me if a lot of those were used in this attack on Israel. When you dump billions of dollars worth of American military equipment into the Taliban's hands, of course that's going to make its way into the hands of Hamas and Hezbollah. How could it not? I, I think that that image of Biden fleeing the mighty... What were those C-17 jets taking off with desperate people clinging to the wheel well trying to escape? That's probably what the Iranians and the Hamas and Hezbollah thought about every day as they planned their attack. Last word to you, Ben. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, first of all, on the narrower point about the weapons making their way into Arab-controlled areas. There was a report out this summer which showed that those weapons were finding their way to the streets in Gaza. So once again, this is an indirect contribution of the Biden administration to the jihadist cause, which is what makes this so outrageous and makes any the, the talk less than cheap that comes out of the administration's mouth. But you're absolutely right. The nature of the pullout and the drawdown was such that all of America's enemies and all of the West enemies knew the world is open for business, essentially, to wreak havoc and go on the march. And, of course, we saw this with Russia and Ukraine. We've seen this with not only the bellicosity, but the aggression from communist China. 
Now we're seeing it across the Islamic world as well. It's open season when you have what amount to anti-American American leaders and those who back and concede to and appease anti-Americans as well. And again, that's not a call for toppling every single evil government in the world, because actually that ends up ultimately more undermining your interest, as we've seen in the way that it's played out. But what it says is you have to show overwhelming strength and have that credible threat itself as a deterrent or the other side is going to go on the march. And every adversarial power is on the march today precisely because the Western, of the Western world's wokeness and weakness. Absolutely terrifying. Ben, where's the best place people can read your work? You say you've got some pieces coming out in the near future. Where can we find those? I, I publicize all my pieces at winegarden.substack.com, write for a number of other publications, the New York Post, the Federalist, Newsweek, Epic Times, and beyond. But I shoot out all of my content at winegarden.substack.com. And then uh, my Twitter feed as well at BH Winegarden. All right. Well, we'll put those on the website for people to find. Great to catch up with you. Of course, it's terrifying and depressing, but we have to tell the truth of what's going on. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Ezra. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, keep fighting for freedom. And check out Avi Yamini's daily reports from Israel at thetruthaboutthewar.com. Good night.